story that happened in Taiwan, and it happened on January 17, 2004, so almost um, six years ago now, a 66-ton whale washed up on the beach dead. Well, the people in Taiwan had a little confusion about what to do with that because it's not every day a 66-ton anything washes up on your beach. And so they really didn't do anything with it for a little while. And about two weeks after it had been laying there, one of the guys in the authority says, we really need to move that thing. And somebody said, well, why don't we move it into the town where we can take it into a lab and find out what killed it, maybe gives us some information about the whale that we can use so we can help other whales survive. And so they loaded the 66-ton whale onto a 56-foot flatbed truck. Now, apparently in those two weeks since the whale had died, it had been decomposing. Gases had been building up within the whale. And as they were driving on the 56-foot truck, the 66-ton whale, apparently they hit a bump too many. And as they were in the middle of the town, driving through the streets, the whale simply exploded. Reports said that as the truck was making its way through, all of a sudden, whale parts went everywhere. Nearby cars and shops were showered with blood and organs, and gas could be smelled throughout the town. That's nice, isn't it? Everybody ready for lunch? You know what I was thinking about is, sometimes our lives are like that. We're just driving through town, minding our own business, when all of a sudden, whale guts comes flying at us. Anybody had that happen recently? Yeah, okay. But here's what I mean, all right? That day, one of the words that they used to describe what happened is that people in that town were overwhelmed with whale. And the truth is that many of us in our lives, while it's not whales... We find points in our lives when we are overwhelmed. When we just physically get exhausted. When we get paralyzed by all that there is to do. And whatever it is that overwhelms us, whether it is overextending ourselves physically or a flood of facts or demands or commitments or questions that are unanswered or bills that keep showing up, whatever it is, it leads to confusion and chaos and our lives are paralyzed by fear that comes from being overwhelmed. What is it in your life that overwhelms you? You know, I uh, one of the things as a pastor that I've come to really cherish are our Saturdays as a family. Because as Eli's in school, the only day we really have together as a family when we're all off and not having major obligations is Saturday. And yesterday was a pretty full Saturday, and so I just started thinking in my head, well, well when am I going to have another Saturday off? So I thought about next Saturday. Well, next Saturday, there's a cleanup day here at the church. Starts at 6 o'clock in the morning. And then at 9 o'clock, we have a flag football game. At 10 o'clock, we're going to the Pioneer Fest at Eli's school. And then after that, there is a trip to Honeysuckle Hill Farm for the first through third graders. So next Saturday's gone. The week after that is Reformation Day, or as we call it, Halloween. So Halloween is a day. It is Reformation Day if you look on your calendar. Halloween is a day taken. You know, when you have kids, Halloween is a day that's taken. And then I started to think about it, and I don't have many Saturdays open because holiday season's coming. 
And as I looked at my calendar, part of me was just overwhelmed with all that I filled my life with. I was thinking about that and how it, it causes us to kind of be paralyzed sometimes. And I reflected back on my youth. When I used to go to the circus as a child, my favorite thing was the lion tamer. Now, I like the lion basically because a lion starts with the letter L, and my name starts with the letter L, and when you're a kid, that's all it takes, right? And so I was reading about a lion tamer, and I don't know whether you know this or not, but lion tamers, when they go into the uh, cage with the lion, when they're there with him, they have several things on them to help protect themselves. They have a whip, they have a gun most of the time that you can't see if the lion gets too violent. But what is the most important tool they have is a stool, like this. Now, when I first saw the lion tamer doing this with a stool, I thought, well, that's just a good show, right? Because if a lion wanted to eat through a stool, a lion could eat through a stool. But they say the reason that a stool is so effective in taming a lion is because the lion tries to focus on all four legs at the same time. And as it's trying to focus on all four legs, it becomes paralyzed and can't move. That's what you think about your life for a minute. Have you ever found yourself in one of those moments when you've got so many balls in the air, you've got so many calendar dates, you've got so many appointments, you've got so much stuff that you're trying to focus on all of these things and it paralyzes you into not doing anything? Anybody ever been there? It's okay to raise your hand in church, all right? You been there? I was thinking about this week and got to Psalm 90 and realized that there are two ways that if you want to truly, truly get over what happens when you get overwhelmed, the, the two ways and simplest things to do is, first of all, to simplify your life. There's a simple revolution going on. It's kind of interesting because some of the best products and biggest stocks in recent years have been companies that strive for simplicity. Apple is a company that's very simple in its branding and makes things simple to use. Google is a website that now hosts over 80% of searches on the web, and yet if you go to their webpage, it is the simplest website. Southwest Airlines made a commitment several years ago they were going to be the cheapest airline, and they were going to do it by being the simplest. And even as major airlines have filed bankruptcy across the board, Southwest, although maybe not thriving, is surviving. Books are out now in Christian bookstores because we like to take anything that the world's doing and copy it into the church. The simple church, simple life idea. And when you're going through all of this overwhelming stuff, you've got to learn how to simplify. A second way you can do it is by clarifying, and that just means getting back to the basics and what is important. I saw this week that John Wooden, basketball coach, turned 99 years old. How many of you watched John Wood never coach a game? Yeah, I didn't. That's good. John had quit by the time I was watching basketball games, but John is considered to be the greatest basketball coach in history. And he tells a story one year. I don't know if you knew this or not, but, but John Wooden basketball teams won several national titles in a row. He was coaching the UCLA Bruins. And one week they, they were starting their practice. Back then they didn't have Midnight Madness. They just started practice. 
And so they get together in the locker room, and John Wooden comes out, and they're all waiting because they won the national championship the year before. They're ready for training camp to start. They wonder what words of wisdom John Wooden is going to have for them. So he comes out, and John Wooden says, Guys, I just want to tell you that today we start our path to a championship. And today we start our path to a great team. And I want to start today by telling you the simplest thing you can think of that's going to help us to win a championship. And reminiscent of Vince Lombardi's, this is a football speech, John Wooden pulled out a sock. He said, guys, today for the first half hour, we're going to work on how to properly put on your socks. The guys kind of looked at him and chuckled a little bit. And John Wooden said, listen, I've been with guys before that didn't know how to put their socks on. And if you don't put your socks on correctly, you're going to develop a blister. And if your blister gets bad enough, you're going to miss a game. And if you miss the right game, we might lose that game. And if we lose the right game, we might not win the championship. So today, guys, we're going to learn how to put our socks on correctly. So today, out of Psalm 90, we're going to learn how to put our socks on correctly. All right? This is a psalm of Moses, and it's at a time when there was lots of questions and things going on with the people of Israel. It really would have been an overwhelming time for them. And Moses is standing on the edge of the people going into the promised land. And if you remember biblical history, Moses wasn't able to go into the promised land because of his sin. But he's standing there waiting for it to happen. Now, you'll look at Psalm 90. It says a prayer of Moses. You see that? You see it? Yes? No? You there? Okay. Just making sure. It says a prayer of Moses. Here's an interesting thing. Most of the Psalms, 150 of them, most of them are written by David or ascribed to David. There's only one psalm that's ascribed to Moses. And where is it? Right here. Good. You're there. All right. Psalm 90. It's this one. Here's another interesting thing. If this is a psalm of Moses, and most scholars assure that it is, and that it is right before they go into the promised land, and Moses is going to bow out, that this is the earliest psalm we have. This is the first of the psalms that was written. And what Moses really does here is he's recounting some things for the Israelites as they go in. This would have been the first worship song written for the Israelite songbook. And he starts like this. It says, Lord, You have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or for You brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. Now, I want us to see six basics out of this passage of Scripture that can help us to understand what we need to clarify when those moments of overwhelming come in our lives. And the first is this. God is great. God is great. Moses begins the psalm with the most basic declaration you can make. In fact, he starts with just simply the word Lord. Now, it's interesting because he doesn't use the word for most of the psalms used for Lord. He uses a different word. Most of the Psalms use a word Yahweh. You've heard Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God that signifies that He is, that He is Almighty. Well, this is a little different version of a word that was used for the Lord. It is the word Adonai. And that basically means Creator, Supreme Being, High and Holy One. So what Moses says from the very beginning is, Lord, Creator, Ruler, Great God. Then he says this, You have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. 
What he basically says there that our dwelling place is, that's our personal safe harbor, our personal place of rest, our personal resort that gives us peace. And so even in this first few words, what Moses says is, Lord, you are more high and lofty and mighty and holy than we can ever imagine. But at the same time, Lord, you are personal and you care and you are the place that we can run in our deepest need. He balances the two major aspects of God's character that we must all grasp, that God is great and God is good. He goes on to say, Now, before the mountains were born, he says, You have always been, or brought forth from the earth of the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That last word, God, there is also interesting, because what it tells us is that name for God is a name that other cultures in that area use for God, but they would always add something to the end. It's a word that's just two letters, E-L, it's pronounced L. And what it basically means is that it was the God, and they would add something, the God of the harvest, the God of the Philistines. But what Moses says is, it's not you're the God of anything except that you are the God of everything. You are just El, God. God Almighty, God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings. In these two verses, we see that God is creator, personal, eternal, superior, our loving refuge. And the question that you need to ask when you become to get overwhelmed in your life is, Do I have a right understanding of God? Because let me tell you what happens. As your God grows bigger, your problems grow smaller. As your understanding of who God is increases, your problems decrease. You see, when I think about my problems, (laughs) it works the other way too, that the bigger my problems begin, the less I think about how great God is. If you think for a minute that we serve a God who created this universe as we've talked about, that holds it in rhythm so that it stays perfectly like it's supposed to, to keep going, why in the world can I not trust Him with my checking account? Right? I mean, if He's that big, why can't I trust Him with the little stuff? We have to remember that our God is holy, pure, powerful, personal, eternal, superior, compassionate, our Lord. I was reading this week about a nuclear submarine. Nuclear submarines uh, are just amazing vessels. They go down and they have to come up every 90 days. And they're asking the skipper, why do you have to come up every 90 days? And he said, well, it's simple. It's it's not for any other reason. I mean, it's not because of food, because we could put enough food down there that we could stay 90 days or longer, even months. It's not because of hygiene. We could put enough staff down there that we can handle the hygiene for months at a time. He says, there's really only one reason we have to come up. He said, even with all of our great equipment, we have to surface every 90 days just to recalibrate our system with the North Star. And I kept thinking, you know, if this submarine that has all of this technology on it has to surface every 90 days just to recalibrate with the North Star, shouldn't we in our lives on a regular basis recalibrate with the God of gods to make sure we're on course? First thing that Moses says is that God is great. Here's the second thing. It's a recurring motif throughout Scripture, and it's simply this. It's a basic thing. Life is short. Verse 3 says, You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons 
of men. Now let's talk for just a minute about the fact that when Moses left and he took with him the Israelites, they were going to the promised land. Some people estimate there were about two and a half to three million Israelites with him. Now, if you remember, as I mentioned earlier, Moses and the Israelites disobey God. And because they disobey God, God says this entire generation cannot go into the promised land. And for 40 years, they wander in the wilderness. Now, let me ask you a question. What had to happen before the Israelites could go into the promised land? That's good. Somebody else. What had to happen to that generation? They had to die, right? And so if you figure that even there are a third of the people that left with Moses, you have in 40 years somewhere around a million deaths. And every day, death was in the camp. So when Moses says that men are dust, saying return to dust, O sons of men, what he literally means is that time is short. People are turning back to dust. Death is always there. Verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You've done it before. You look at kids and you haven't seen them in a while, and you go, Man, where did the time go? Anybody ever looked in the mirror and asked where the time went? Right? I read this this week just to remind us that time is quick in our lives. It says how you might know if you're getting old. Some of you in this room need to listen to this closely. You know you're getting old when your mind makes commitments your body cannot keep. You know you're getting old when everything hurts and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. You know you're getting old when you sink your teeth into a big juicy steak and they stay. You know you're getting old when you dim the lights for economic reasons, not romantic ones. You know you're getting old when you've owned clothes so long that they've come back into style twice. Been there, right? You know you're getting old when you try to quit holding your stomach in no matter who walks into the room. So Moses says, time is short. And here's the question you need to ask. Are you ready for your time to be done? We've talked about this a lot in the last year because just everywhere I look in Scripture, God is reminding me that our time is short. Are you ready? Here's the third thing that Moses says, starting in verse 7, and that is that sin is serious. Now, that seems kind of a strange counterbalance. He says, God is great, our time is short, and we must realize that our sin is serious. Verse 7, it says, We were consumed by your anger, terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Moses says, listen, life is short. It's not very long. And what we have done is we have messed around and we've done things wrong in your sight. And because of that, we are suffering the consequences of sin in our lives. Scripture tells us that sin is one of those things that looks really enticing and fun on the front end. But once you get into it, the consequences are more than you can handle. Y'all know I grew up in West Tennessee, or most of you do, and I still remember when I was eight or nine years old, my parents and my best friend's parents, Stephen's parents, thought it was okay for them to drop me off at a place for the first time and come back later and pick us up. And this particular place they dropped us off was the Dyer County Fair. Now, I know that, that county fairs aren't as big as they once used to be, but in Dyer County, you got out of school for the Dyer County Fair. And you would go to the Dyer County Fair, everybody, on Friday was bracelet day. 
bracelet day meant you could buy a bracelet for like a dollar and you could ride any ride there, right? And so we went to the Dyer County Fair and we were going to have the greatest day in the history of the world because our parents gave us both $10. That was big stuff back then, right? So we spent a dollar on our bracelet and then the rest of the day we spent on food. Hot dogs, cotton candy, funnel cakes. This was before I found out I was diabetic, so anything goes, right? And I ate like three hot dogs, two funnel cakes, a couple of things of cotton candy, two or three drinks. It was great. We're getting ready to leave, and we've ridden all the stuff we want to ride, and we just look at each other, and we look at our watches, and we say to ourselves, we've got 15 minutes before Miss Linda, that was Stephen's mom, gets here. We've got to ride one more ride and make it the greatest ride in the history of mankind. That's the kind of day we were having. It was unbelievable. So we go, and the ride we chose was the Tilt-A-Whirl. Anybody ever run the Tilt-A-Whirl? Now, I don't know that it was actually called the Tilt-A-Whirl because it was the Dyer County Fair version of the Tilt-A-Whirl. It may have been the Whirl of Twill. I don't know what it was. But it was the same idea. You went in those things that were half, you know, half things, and you had the wheel in the middle. You know what I'm talking about. And your thing spun around. And this was one of those that, that your wheel would let you spin as fast as you want to go. And so Stephen and I sat down and we made a pact that we were going to spin that wheel as fast as we could possibly spin that wheel for as long as that ride was going. And so we started the ride. The carny started it up. And we started spinning and spinning and just yanking that wheel and yanking it. We were going to do everything we could. And about halfway through the ride, my cotton candy and funnel cake and the hot dogs started to twirling and whirling inside. You know, you, you been there? You know what I'm talking about? You been there? Okay. And in my state, I could not say to Stephen, I don't feel well. Could you please not spin so fast? Right? Because if I would have attempted that, it would not have been a pleasant experience inside the ride. So I just t- quit spinning and held my stomach. And when I quit spinning, Stephen gave me a look. That Stephen and I have been friends. Till, we're still friends to this day. We've been friends since we were two years old. Grew up across the fence. He now works in Nashville, and we, we still hang out some. He gave me a look at that moment I have never seen on his face before or since. It was the, how dare you give up on spinning that wheel. And his look became a look of determination that he was going to spin double so that we could have this ride. And so he's just spinning away. Well, the ride finally ends. I hold on to the side, get off, walk gingerly out of the ride, and find the nearest, largest patch of grass that I can find and return to the Dyer County Fair all of the food that I had eaten that day. Now, here's my point. Sin is kind of like a -a tilt-a-whirl. It's the thing that when you look at it, you think, this is going to be great and awesome. And when you first start, it is unbelievable. But somewhere in the midst of it, you start to think, I think I got more than I bargained for. Adrian Rogers is famous for saying that sin will always take you farther than you want to go. It will leave you longer than you want to stay. and It will make you pay more than you ever wanted to pay. And what Moses says here is, the sin that we did has caused severe consequences. I think one of the saddest thoughts in the Scripture is Moses on the edge of the promised land in his dying days thinking, if only I could go see the promised land. Ready to cross over, but knowing that his sin had cost him that. 
Scripture teaches that when we get to heaven, those of us that are believers in Christ, we will not be judged based on our sin as far as righteousness is concerned. But I do believe that when we get to heaven, we will be given some understanding of the kind of promised land moments we missed out on because of our unfaithfulness. Now, it tells us in Scripture that we will have every tear wiped away, and that's a symbolic thing, but I also think it means that there will be some tears of regret. Let me ask you a few questions. When was the last time you got alone with God and asked Him about your sin? When was the last time you stopped what you were doing for 30 minutes or an hour and just confessed to the Lord the sins that you were committing? When was the last time you allowed God to change a habit or a sin pattern in your life? When was the last time you wept over the sin that you have? Moses says our sin causes your anger to be against us. Reading through the one-year Bible, you realize when you get to the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah how God's people had turned their backs on Him so many times. God just becomes angry with their sin. Still loves them. Still says over and over, if you would turn from your sin and come back to me, I would receive you. But you have remained in your sin. God is great. Our time is short. Sin is serious. Here's the fourth thing. Wisdom is required. Verse 12 says this. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a wisdom a heart of wisdom. What it means there basically is each of us have a number of days. It tells us up there that that length of our days in verse 10 is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow. He tells us in verse 12 that because our time is short, because our days are numbered, we need to number our days. And what that means is we need to take advantage of every moment that we have. If you can number your days, if you just count on 70 years being a lifespan, if you're 25, that means you've got about 16,000 days left. If you're 35, around my age, you've got around 12,000 to 13,000 days left. If you're 45, you've got 9,000 days left. 55, you've got 5,500 days left. If you're over 65, you've got under 2,000 days left. And if you're over 70, you're living on borrowed time. Now, I'm going to tell you in the first service, i got some groans about that statement. I also got attacked in a couple of Sunday school classes, but I made it out alive. But that's what Moses says. Make each day count. Somebody said, what if you counted each second of the day that you're given as a dollar? Would you understand how you're investing your time? If you just think about your investment, you have 86,400 seconds in a day. Now imagine how you're investing each second. Moses looks out and he says, listen, we're getting back to the basics. It may be an overwhelming task, but remember, God is good. We remember that our days are short. We remember that sin is serious and that we've got to make the most of it. And then the last two things is this, is that mercy is available. Here's the good news. Verse 13, it says, Relent, O Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. You see, the thing is, Moses lays out a pretty bleak picture, but then he says the good thing is we serve a loving, compassionate God. 
And he says, when you realize that sin is serious, that you've got this problem, when you realize life is overwhelming you, and you say, why is it overwhelming? You look through and you clarify, you realize God is bigger than my problems, that my sin is serious, perhaps I need to confess that. You come to the sin and you say, I'm just thankful that I serve a God that loves me and is merciful towards me. And then the last verse of this passage tells us that success is possible. What Moses basically says is, it's an interesting prayer because he prays about how God's anger has burned against them. And then the last two verses he turns and basically says, Now, Lord, as these people go into the promised land, do what you're going to do. Make your promises come true. It's a beautiful picture of Moses passing the torch through prayer and saying, God, I may not be able to go, but I want your promises to be fulfilled in the generation that is to come. I don't know what areas of your life might be overwhelming to you right now, but I can guarantee you this. If you're in the midst of one of those overwhelming periods of time, it's a time frame that you need to set aside to clarify what's important. 